1: Julian Halliday. Hello. I'm to, so nice to see you. I'm so excited. We are here for something very special,
2: aren't
1: we? We are. The like history indeed. of magic. So the basis is the it's about Harry Potter, the mm-hmm. ideas that went into it, including some of the original manuscripts, is that right?
2: Yeah, exactly. And what we've done here is we've taken the Harry Potter stories and we've examined and sort of investigated, explored the influences of magic upon J.K. Rowling. Mm. And we've looked at ancient history, mythology and folklore across the ages and seeing how that's replicated in the books and how in many cases she's actually taken the stories and she's given them her own creative twist.
1: We have got a lot to explore, haven't we? And I know we're going to go in mm -hmm. and we're going to have a look at, you've got some paintings here, you've got artifacts, you've got books and manuscripts.
2: Lead the way. We've got some incredible things there. I can't wait. (laughs) And we're just entering the main part of the exhibition, but before we get there, I just want to show you these two wonderful paintings here. And I just want to explain that they're by a, an incredible modern artist. His name is Jim Kay. Mm. And he has been commissioned by Bloomsbury Press to illustrate the Harry Potter books. And he's currently done three of the books. Mm. So Prisoner of Azkaban has just come out. And here we've got Dumbledore mm. on the left and McGonagall on the right. These are just a, a one stage in the creation of the final images. The so they're not that, finished paintings? Not finished. Such, right? But Jim is very careful. I mean, he has told us that he has gone completely back to the books themselves in order to, uh, you know, there's lots of imagery in here. And obviously if there's Dumbledore, he's holding Sherbert his bag of sherbet lemon. Um, but every single, every single detail of his books relates in some way to the characters. And that's purely through his own reading of the books. So he hasn't been influenced by the films in any Mm. Shape or form as all I
1: mean it's a, it' it's difficult for me i I think there's always a problem when you have a book in your head and you mm. have characters in your mind mm. and how they should look mm. and he's created a version of the characters how you yeah. might imagine yeah. them and I think the realism is extraordinary I mean the the wrinkles mm. around Dumbledore's eyes are ex- absolutely exceptional there aren't they and he's clearly mm. um, a very very detailed painter mm. um, but they leave me slightly dissatisfied. I, I
2: think. Th- I think. I think Jim would actually agree with you. I mean, he often <laughs> does twenty different versions before really? he comes up with a final version. And I has been spending literally years on on doing these. And Gosh. imagine he's got four more books to illustrate.
1: I'm, I can imagine. Like, the. the the pressure on mm. an artist to, mm. to give mm. visual rendering mm. to this world, it must be extraordinary because the books mm. are so well-known, so well-loved. Mm. Mm. The characters, as I mm. said, yeah, everybody has their vision of Dumbledore and McGonagall in their heads. And it must have been hard for him, actually. I'm sure it was quite an angst-ridden process.
2: I'm sure as a commission it was probably, one, incredible, and two, the more it's gone on, he must be thinking, what have I let myself in for?
1: Absolutely. Um, I
2: think he says that originally he expected it would take him six months per book. Um, We're talking about years and years and years. (gasps) Really, Um, but he just puts his heart and soul into it.
1: And there are actually bits from J.K. Rowling
2: herself, aren't there? There's there's little diagrams and things that she's. So in this particular exhibition, we've got a combination of original manuscripts and drawings by J.K. Rowling herself. We've got some modern artwork, and obviously interspersed with British Library collection items, also artifacts like broomsticks and, <laughs> and cauldrons which we borrow from other institutions. But yeah, so no, we're going to look at some of J.K. Rowling's own drawings too. Oh, yeah. I, this is my heaven. Yeah, many of the manuscripts,
1: <laughs> J.K. Rowling, yeah. Harry Potter, kind of, and art. <laughs>
2: Oh, go. Oh, wow. What we're doing now, see the exhibition has been organized into the different subjects that people might study at Hogwarts. Ah. So this room is devoted to potions. I love these big the books centuries. in the middle. They're rather brilliant aren't They're they?
1: amazing. And then this is a great space. I love the yeah. atmosphere in each mm. in this room. It's so you it, it feels Hogwarts. you feel
2: like you've entered into a into a that kind of school space, don't you? And yeah.
1: what is I mean look at okay. this. Ah, so this is pride of place.
2: yeah. I mean there are. I mean it's peculiar. There are no star items in this exhibition because like literally <laughs> yes. everything, everything could be categorised as a star item, um, but this is a rather splendid historical cauldron, and it's called the Battersea cauldron. Uh, it's named because it was fished out of the River Thames. In Battersea, sometime in the middle of the nineteenth century, mm. and uh, the experts reckon it dates from around between 800 to 600 BC. I mean,
1: it's so old, isn't it? It's so we're going stronger. well into Celtic. Oh yes, Celtic territories. But mm. the idea mm. that you've got a cauldron in mm. here, mm. in a space that's discussing potions, mm. I think mm. that is that is a wonderful bringing together of objects, ideas, of books.
2: and it's a beautiful thing okay it's got you know it's beautiful when you look inside it's almost completely intact the rivets are splendid the details hasn't been
1: blown up from cooking up magical potions (laughs) but you can
2: imagine i mean cauldrons have lots of different uses don't they Mm. um for making potions and remedies to cooking and so forth Mm. but i mean as an artifact and as an object it's you know rather astonishing and you love to think that this is the kind of cauldron that. Harry and his friends might have been wanting to use
1: absolutely, and, and I think what's so so lovely from a sort of art historical point of view, the way it's put mm. together with these rivets, mm. it looks so modern. Oh, the it idea does. it's been, I mean, presumably it's been put into the river mm. as an offering. You know, there's a so. lot of, of deposits yeah. in rivers because mm. of you know this animism it's belief a in animism. Offering uh, as yeah, some yeah kind exactly. The spirit of the mm. river needs a gift, mm. so it could have been a practical cauldron for cooking up soup. Yeah, or it could have mm. actually been. Yeah. Mm. Used for sorcery, for yeah, some sort of... for
2: making a potion, or a remedy. Or a remedy. And think about it in that kind of sense, that potions mm. and remedies, often why are you going to be making a, a, a potion? It's in order to effect a cure of some kind, or to you know, to do something to make yourself lucky in love, or something like that.
1: And in a way, this is a, a, a theme that I, I think must come through in this mm. whole exhibition mm. on magic, it's that, that strange world, the borderline historically between, I suppose, witches, how mm. they're perceived, mm. the mm. borders between good mm. and evil oh, yeah. and devil worshipping mm. and magic. Mm. But at the same time, going back historically mm. to things like this, it reminds us that actually it's more about, it's more about oh. wise members of the community, oh, yes. doctors, yeah. re- you know, remedies. Yeah, these are absolutely. all roles that they fulfil, aren't so they? So
2: making potions today might be associated with witchcraft, yeah. but in the past it's been... You know, a, a typical thing that um, accomplished, skilled people like doctors and physicians might want to do.
1: Absolutely, and uh, isn't there a manuscript over here that deals with exactly that about?
2: Well, we've, got apothecaries, we've got a couple. We've got a couple. to show you. So this is the first one. I love this. So this is a, a beautiful 14th century illuminated manuscript. It's made somewhere northern France. And mm-hmm. um, you know, over the, the way that the pigments have been preserved, they do look like they are made. Yesterday.
1: Well, French ones in particular, the blue mm. that the mm. French uh, scribes mm. use it, it's so mm. vibrant. And mm. Mm. the thing I love about manuscripts, and as I'm sure you do too, Julian, as a, as a bibliophile, mm. but half the time they're not open, they're not displayed no. to the it's sun sunny. and the elements. And that's why this it's ink sunny. looks it's so sunny. fresh, it's doesn't sunny. it?
2: Yeah. What you're talking about, let's look at on the page yeah. on the left, you can actually see it's an illustration of a uh, an apothecary shop. It's yeah. so an apothecary being a, somebody who's going to be dispensing medicines and uh, creating remedies for you. And you can see there's so, so beautiful shelves yes. behind him and those really, really ornate-looking jars and pots of different kinds.
1: And I've noticed as well they've illuminated with mm. gold a couple of the pots yep. just to give mm-hmm. a bit of texture. It's I incredible. Mean, it really,
2: this comes from a surgeon's handbook, so it would be used to... Um, to educate somebody, to provide instructions on uh, different forms of uh, surgical operations and different kind of remedies and Mm. medical practices.
1: And I think this idea as well, I mean, even there, you can see the selection Mm. of Mm. of different ingredients that can Mm. go into a potion, be Mm. mixed up. Mm. There is an alchemy here. There's Mm. a magic to it in Mm. as much as everything has to be weighed correctly. You have to have the right amount of ingredients. And so you can see where the overlap into the sort of the magical and the mystical comes. But this mm. is a practical oh, guidebook
2: to heal people, isn't it? Absolutely. Mm. And lots of the objects in our exhibition are purely that. Mm. No, they are practical handbooks. Mm. Yeah. There's one more we wanted to right. have a quick shame, look at. Shame, shame, what have we got? Ooh. So this one, printed. this is an, an early printed book. But mm. what's so important about this particular image, it's the very first ever printed depiction of witches using a cauldron. Wow. And it dates from around the year 1490. It's printed in Germany. Uh, it was actually commissioned by somebody who wished to actually refute witchcraft. Okay. And but the illustrator got slightly carried away. <laughs> uh, the illustrator shown, is shown two witches and they are shown they're dropping a snake and a cockerel.
1: Yeah I can see the cockerels being like shoved yeah. into, it's been into the, literally <laughs> into been, <laughs> into the and cockerel. And they are
2: in order to create a hailstorm. <gasps> um, but what's quite interesting, I mean, if you c- can you describe the appearance of, of the witches to me?
1: Mm, well, they're both rather ghoulish, aren't yeah. they? They've got these bags under their eyes mm, and, mm. and haggard looking. Precisely. Um, and, Precisely. Yeah, I mean, they're just they're quite grotesque, aren't they're they? They're
2: quite dynamic. And this image is rather important because it's, it comes about at the same time as the, the printing press is becoming popular. Mm. Um, these images start to be circulated. It helps to demonise... Witchcraft, and also old women associated with being witches. So it um, leads to the, f- the feeling of the persecution of witches. And the kind of, uh, I mean, this is uh, it. If we're talking... What early is this? modern era. This 1490. is late 1490. And it does. It triggers mm.
1: off. Mm. I mean, this is we're going into the world of, of heresy trials, of mm. burnings, yeah, of, of all sorts of mm. thought crimes, aren't mm. we? So because it's printed, it's mm. easily disseminated, which mm. means it's filtering out into society, and people mm. are getting this impression mm. of the connection between witches and devils. I well, suppose. Absolutely.
2: And it, and it's really fueling the persecution of witches, and particularly elderly women, as being associated with committing. Uh, witchcraft in the kind of like late 15th century and the early modern era
1: so really it's the power of images mm. to to affect yeah. how it's very it's
2: very sense. potent isn't it
1: very potent yeah <gasps> there's so much in this exhibition I've seen something I want to do okay <laughs> come, on, come and have a look at this
2: so Nina this incredible scroll uh, is called the Ripley scroll mm. and it's about six meters long um, we've never ever been able to unfurl it in its full extent before. So we have a special case made <gasps> to put it on display in the exhibition.
1: How exciting for you, though, as oh, curator. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you I must mean, have been like a kid in it a was one, of the,
2: one of the things that I actually said to the designers, can, they please, can we please find a way of displaying the whole manuscript in its entirety? It's made around about the year 1600, mm-hmm. um, late 16th century anyhow. It's made in England, mm-hmm. and... Uh, it tells you how to make the Philosopher's Stone, (laughs) and it's named after a a reputed 15th century canon of Bridgerton Priory called George Ripley, who was a reputed alchemist, and he wrote a book called The Compound of Alchemy, and this uh, scroll in turn is supposedly based on Ripley's writings.
1: Wow. Now the reason it is, it's mm. exciting for mm. Art Detective for mm. looking at this is the, the artistry of it. It is mm. absolutely
2: beautiful. Let's be frank, it's a bit bonkers, actually. It's bonkers, yeah. It is a bit bonkers. And the execution of it is rather... I mean, dare I say, it's a bit rustic, mm-hmm. but that actually lends it, lends it this rather quirky, quaint quality. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got to kind of work out who this might be made for and clearly somebody who was interested in alchemy and interested in the notion that you can... Not just turn base metals into gold, but you can potentially create the uh, elixir of life as well. Yeah, and there's this whole sequence of processes that you were supposed to undertake, which, if you carry them out successfully, and believe me, no, we've never tried to do them, and I can't like think. We should try and achieve this at some stage. Right, we
1: need to put a weekend aside, for we me, Julian, we, we need to get this stuff. But we need
2: some <laughs> ingredients, and so we need some ingredients <laughs> like, when really you come down, like dragons and phoenixes, Badly. and mm. things which are slightly difficult to obtain nowadays. Because what you're attempting to do is you're going to create three different stones. Mm-hmm. The white stone, the red stone, and the black stone. I'm going to show them to you in a moment. Okay. And by combining those, you, you end up with your... Elixir of life, and like Nicholas Flamel in the Harry Potter stories, you gain eternal life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely uh, stunned by some mm. of the imagery here because, mm. even looking at these small roundels, there's the suggestion mm. of sort of biblical
2: oh, stories, yes. Adam well, and Eve, and oh, Cain yeah. and Abel. Um, it's a half based on facts. Mm. And it's half allegorical and it has philological elements to it as well, as you've noticed.
1: I mean, I'm intrigued here. So presumably we've got the serpent coming down mm. in this mm. rather gruesome form, mm. actually. I mean, quite mm. there's that story, isn't there, in that... Um, Either the reason that the serpent becomes snake-like is mm. because its limbs are taken away so it must crawl mm. on its belly for all eternity. Mm. But this is in that sort of intermediary state with a serpent's mm. tail wrapping out and then actually a limbed mm. human at the end.
2: As you as you kind of identified the kind of dark elements to this as well. Mm. Um, I mean the whole notion, you're playing with nature actually, aren't you?
1: Absolutely. You're
2: playing with nature by attempting to subvert it by... Gaining immortality.
1: All through this collection, mm. you've got mm. things that fascinate me. I mm. mean, my mm. my research was all on bird symbols, but actually mm. symbols, beasts, bestiaries, oh. uh, yeah. physiologus, these sorts mm. of texts that go back and tell these even back to Pliny and mm. you know the, his books on nature. They give you the as much as is scientifically known about something, but then they'll always twist off and become symbolic off something else, won't they? So yeah. they might be, as you say with mm. the serpent, that that's mm. resurrection or yes, regeneration. Because certainly, because certainly. The dove is you know, peace and b- baptism. And so yeah. Yeah. I love that sequence mm. of connections from mm. what seems to us scientific and, mm. and re- ra- rational, and yet, becomes it's, very it's
2: borderline abstract. rational, isn't it?
1: It is borderline, um, but this is what's all across. And, this. and
2: do you recognise this bird here? I mean, imitates. It's called the bird of Hermes. Oh. Um. But it's also, it's also believed to resemble to represent the phoenix. Phoenix. Too. Yeah. And again, another bird which regenerates after. after you know.
1: Well, the phoenix is, is featuring heavily. So, mm. so we've got this idea of rebirth, eternal mm-hmm. life, sort of coming through. Um, and then this is. This is
2: the Mouth The the cl- mouth ma- ma- of, of choleric beware. beware.
1: So it's about the for yes. the humours, yes. the balancing of the, the yes. humours. And
2: then it says Heroes the Last of the Red and a beginning to put away the dead.
1: Uh-huh. The elixir Vitae.
2: Elixir Vitae. The elixir
1: really, of life. I mean this is getting so exciting. I mean though. it's
2: really <laughs> it's really, really peculiar. And then it's really peculiar. And then after we have our bird of Hermes, oh. the Phoenix, and it says down here, the bird of Hermes is my name eating my wings to make me lame. Oh, my
0: goodness.
2: Now, this is rather interesting. So I don't Mm -hmm. necessarily Harry Potter fans would be entirely aware about this, but this this is in the alchemy section of our exhibition. There's a reason for that, because in the very first book, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and J.K. Rowling herself has explained that um, the three father figures that Harry has in the books are... Named Albus Dumbledore. Albus <laughs> is white. Then you have Rubeus Hagrid, red, and you have Sirius Black. Put them together, and you create Harry's father figure.
1: My uh, brain has just slightly exploded. It is, that. it is rather interesting. I so like that. That's a
2: good example of how uh, she wasn't influenced by this document in any way, shape, or form. But when she was doing her thinking and her kind of research into writing the stories, she was aware about these kind of things. Mm. She was aware about um, historical alchemists such as Nicholas Flamel. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do love this, the fact that mm. there's a connection between the stories and this scroll, which is 400 years old. That is amazing. It, it finishes off and, you know, it's got this verse in English. Thou must part them into three and knit them as the Trinity and make them all but one. Lo, here is the Philosopher's <laughs> Stone. Oh, goosebumps. Da-da. Goosebumps. Da-da.
1: <gasps> and, you know, the idea that this is already, what, 400 years old? 300, 400 yep, years absolutely. old? Absolutely. Mm. That these ideas can still capture imaginations. Mm. I think that's what J.K. Mm. Rowling has done so efficiently. But, she has. But she's building on something that has tantalised people for yeah, as long
2: absolutely. as we've really awesome Absolutely.
1: And we have another alchemist to we look have at, do And even
2: better.
1: Now this has got to be
2: one of my favourite paintings. I know. I was I just incredibly lucky. You know, whenever you're putting together any exhibition, and obviously the British Library we have lots of, we've got literally hundreds thousands of old manuscripts and printed books at our disposal. But in order to you know, do justice to a subject like this, we need to borrow artefacts and artwork from other institutions. And in this particular case, this painting, mm-hmm. which has been loaned by Derby Museum and Art Gallery and you've recognised the artist, do you?
1: Absolutely, Joseph Wright mm. of Derby, who mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of people will know him from things like the experiments in an air pump. It's science meets art meets industry meets Absolutely. technology, yeah. and what he does, I think, better than pretty, pretty much any painter, mm. you know, bar maybe a Caravaggio, <laughs> is play with light and create light sources and that sort of tenebrism yeah. of the, the, the deep, deep, deep Absolutely. shadow, and then just the shock Absolutely.
2: of the light. I'm a, I'm a yeah, the light, the, the light in his painting is. Is quite extraordinary. Mm. I mean, and the subject matter as well. Yeah. What is hugely interesting about this particular painting is it's actually based reportedly on a historical episode. So, here Joseph Wright of Derby is recreating a moment in which a German alchemist called Heligbrand, Brand, he's in Hamburg 1669, and he is, uh, no, he's trying to create gold or something like that. He's doing part of the alchemical process mm. and in order to do that he's got this flask here mm-hmm. which is bathed in light and he's heating it up um, and inside the flask do you know what's inside the flask
1: i do but i, I do. want you to tell me it's it's,
2: it's <laughs> urine okay <laughs> now ah uh, it's urine like incredibly like who in earth <laughs> have the idea no, no, I, I still might speak my who in earth have the idea like to create gold you have to boil up urine but it's a good <laughs> idea at the time in the process inadvertently he discovers phosphorus. phosphorus By heating up urine, he's discovered phosphorus. So it's a real scientific discovery. It? So it's that real crossover between alchemy, uh, a slightly sort of strange arcane sort of pursuit, and at the same time with chemistry and modern scientific discovery, which is, you know, what was happening at the time with Joseph Wright of Derby himself was actually painting.
1: Absolutely. So he's painting going up to mm. 1800, he, yeah. he in 1796, yeah. I think but he is at this crisis point in, in English mm. life mm. where all mm. around him in Derby you've got mm. the white heat of technology, mm. you've got the mm. developments of yeah. your steam and industry and yeah. things that are coming mm. and, and he sort of starts to represent that in his art yeah. but he m- always blends it together so you've got the kind of the gothic and the timeless, yeah. you've got these symbols it's given lots of there. yeah. It's
2: given lots of Christian symbolism yeah background here i also particularly like the two okay. the two i mean very i i describe them maybe as apprentices or assistants are. of some kind yeah. um young you know there's very young boys watching on and they and the way that he's on his knees and he's mm. looking upwards. But I
1: think what's great as well is the expressions mm. here, because yeah, this yeah. child's got this sort of wonderment and, yeah. and shock. Yeah. And his is almost divine. It's, it's like the, renter, the, isn't it? It is its It's like there is almost uh, sort and, of a uh, hallelujah moment. moment. And
2: also, you know, you can, you've got the moon, moon. just above him. You, yeah. can't, you can't quite see where he's looking. Oh, it's Extraordinary creation, isn't it? To me, it's. Mm, quite I think it
1: is the most. Uh, beautiful expression mm. of, of the coming together of the scientific, mm. the fantastical, mm. the mythical, the religious mm. and technology all in one yeah. and all through the paintbrush of such a skilled English oh, painter. Yeah. He's just the best.
2: He's <laughs> he's amazing. I was just, yeah, I was hugely thrilled to have it in the exhibition.
1: Yeah. Well, you've got quite the most extraordinary collection of things here. Mm. There's still so much to explore. Mm.
2: So, um, now we've left Joseph Wright, and we're going to come into the herbology section of the exhibition. Oh, and plant pots hanging from the I know, really? and this is one, it's difficult um, to say which is my favourite room of the exhibition, but I kind of like this one, Yeah. because of a wealth of different items. But, um, I know you can see fantastic printed books, and you can see the plant pots hanging from the ceiling. And we're going to come and have a look at mandrakes over here. Yes! Because mandrakes are... They date back, obviously, the, the history mythology around them dates back for literally hundreds of years.
1: But this stuff gets me so excited. I love botanical drawings. I used to go as a geeky mm. teenager to paint mm. flowers at Kew Gardens. Uh-huh. Um, and so this stuff is just
2: amazing. Well, OK, this assemblage of items is... No, I'm rather fond of this. We've got an Arabic manuscript, um, dating from the 14th century, showing you two mandrakes, but they were actually uh, interpreted at the time as if there were two different sexes of a mandrake. No. So it was actually Mr. and Mrs. Mandrake. Oh, that's hysterical! I know. So, oh, oh, mandrake and woman drake. And then we've borrowed from uh, the, our friends at the Science Museum, this is a 17th century mandrake root, and this is where it all comes from, yeah. because the root resembles the shape of a, a little human, so it's been pulled out from the ground you're actually pulling a little human out of the ground.
1: And in, in the books, of course, mm. when they pull them out they scream, see where They, scream. they, they scream. Have That head.
2: scream is fatal. Yeah. Now, in the Middle Ages, it was believed that uh, pulling a mandrake out of the ground it would scream, but the scream would just drive you insane. <gasps> so it wouldn't actually kill you. But this is a, this is the kind of uh, the masterpiece here. This is a 15th-century illuminated manuscript. It was made probably in northern Italy, maybe in southern Germany, mm. and it shows you how to cultivate your mandrake, and it's on a, a, a particularly fairly. Uh, Peculiar process. Whether people actually do this, who knows?
1: Well, pres- yeah, because we have here a fully mm. naked man.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who represents a mandrake.
1: A mandrake. And then what's coming out of his head? So,
2: so okay, so first of all, um, you have a leaf springing from his head. You have this, um, it's very gruesome, you have two severed hands mm. um, coming out on stalks. They actually represent the fact that, in the Middle Ages, our mandrakes were used as an anaesthetic during amputations. Really? So there's a whole there's a whole reason for that, mm. but then this is how you how you actually uh cultivate how you, you know how, how you harvest it. Uh, you tie a rope round one end of the roots, tie the other end round a dog, <laughs> and you, if you look very carefully, you have to stuff your ears with earth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> stuff okay. Your ears with earth. So I can see
1: this, this, this poor chap here, yeah, and, and then there's
2: his, a good He's got A horn. A horn so right. he's gonna blow his horn. And when he blows the hunting horn, um, it's going to startle the dog. The dog's going to bolt and pull the mandrake out of the ground. And in the process, obviously, you've got your ears full of clods of earth, so you're not going to hear it scream. One reason I chose this particular manuscript for the exhibition is that at this period, of 14th, 15th centuries, there are lots of herbals being drawn, and they're often very realistic and lifelike. In the way that they're depicted but this one the artist has kind of gone to town yeah he's taken a few liberties elsewhere in the book he gives roots of other plants they kind of resemble little animals and so forth um but yeah how you how you harvest a mandrake He's given it's a whole kind of life story there but then we've got much more mm. you've got other texts here that I are want more to show you why. I, this one is this is a, 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 this is a really splendid book and this yeah. is entitled A Curious Herbal yeah. and it was made by a lady called Elizabeth Blackwell in the 18th century and there's an incredible story behind it. Her husband Alexander had been imprisoned in a debtor's prison yeah. and in order to raise the money to have him released she decided to illustrate, engrave and have this book printed to raise the funds to have him released from prison. And she lived near Chelsea Physic Garden, so she did all the illustrations there. Then she had to take them to her husband in prison. He would identify the plants. And then uh, she would add the captions and so forth. And and it was printed over a period of four or five years, until eventually she raised enough money to have him released from prison. And then what did he do? Go on. He left her. I know. There's a, there's a, there's a, but there's an even better part of the story because he then goes to Sweden and he becomes the physician to the King of Sweden. Um, but alas for him, he then becomes implicated in a political conspiracy against the King and he's executed for committing treason. Wow. So he does have his comeuppance. The calm, Wheels um, of uh, um, Fate are going But mad. just an incredible book by no, uh, uh, mid 18th century uh, lady illustrator. Yeah. Um, an absolute labour of love. And this is actually a copy that she's actually annotated herself.
1: But but what's very interesting about how you've laid these out is the mix
2: mm. of mm-hmm. subject
1: matter and background. Oh,
2: exactly. Um, I mean, it's very traditional in an exhibition to put two objects side by side, which come from the same era, they tell the same story. What i have liked to do here is we've mixed things up. So we've got Chinese manuscripts yeah. over there, We've got 18th century printed books. We've got drawings by modern day artists, medieval manuscripts. I mean, we've even got the Garden Gnome Well, I
1: love the Garden Gnome. The Garden gnome. gnome. I do love the Garden Gnome. He's from gnome. our friends
2: at the Garden Museum. Is <laughs> um, went. To, I went to borrow a gnome from him. I could see it at the corner of my eye. In the corner, all by himself, was this little chap here. Well, he's huge, Aww. actually. And he was their biggest and their oldest. Really? Garden gnome. What and age he, is he, he then? He's made in about the year 1900. He's made by a German firm called Heissner, who of the, the, the world's first manufacturers of garden gnomes. Um, and um, in the Harry Potter stories and the Chamber of Secrets, uh, Ron Weasley comments on the, the muggles that they love he's to have little um, garden gnomes in the gardens, which he describes as resembling fat little Father Christmases <laughs> holding fishing rods. Yeah, that <laughs> is. 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 So it does the job. <laughs>
1: But then, what Jim has done, of course, is depict how, oh. how in fact, the, the conception of gnomes that's in the They've book. Got,
2: they're described in the books as having potato heads. Potato heads, as heads yeah. And they're, they're slightly uh, <laughs> grotesque in their appearance. Well, they're they? you know, like little roots growing out of their, their, their chins and so forth. I have
1: to say, though, I prefer mm. these gnomes mm. to that
2: one. I, I love his. <laughs> Those are quite. I wouldn't have him in my garden.
1: Well, from Herbology, we need to keep exploring, don't don't we? Should
0: we keep on going through? Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may
2: vary. Well, the next favorite room of exhibition is devoted to astronomy. I'm looking up up at the night sky there. And again, this is a wonderful room, it has this amazing focus in the middle. Mm. Um, it has this incredible globe, and then on the back wall of there, there's a, what I like to describe as the papery of all different wonderful objects relating to astronomy. Wow. Have a quick look at the globe first. Mm. Um, it's a rather wonderful object Oh, it's a
1: celestial globe. So
2: it represents the night sky, mm. it's made in uh, the late 17th century by Vincenzo Coronelli. Um, and. Uh, We've done something rather interesting with it. Can I just show you? Yeah. So go we've got this little device here. Yes. Which we've had made. And so let's pick on the constellation Draco. Connect the stars. Do you want to have a go? Oh, wow. And then it, uh, it brings you, brings it out and it tells you something Draco about it. Draco
1: Malfoy. The of constellation course. Draco is named after the Latin word for dragon.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, how brilliant. And behind us here, in front of us, oh. um, I mean, in this particular case, so just, you know, just to name check, we've got... Anglo-Saxon astronomical manuscripts on the left. We've got astrolabes, we've got books by Kepler, we've got a piece of paper which comes from the notebook of Leonardo da Vinci. Oh gosh. I it's just like this you know, this great, great collection of different items and artifacts. This is heaven. And this one represents the the constellation Chaos Major, but particularly Sirius, the dog star. And in the shape of a dog, and there's a pattern poem written inside the body.
1: The fact it's serious, you know, mm. you've kept this Harry Potter connection. So There is
2: a connection, but then again, of course, it goes back and it looks into, you know, how, um, in this case, it's, it's derived from, uh, you know, the Greeks and how they identified and. Name some of the the stars in the night sky.
1: I'm so glad you brought in other cultures as well. Mm. It's you know Mm. it's not just a a a look at Western civilization. No, no, it's It's, it's, it's it's purely global,
2: and it basically it does underline the fact that magic in particular is a global phenomenon, (laughs) and it's been practiced and uh, studied by people across the world for centuries. I
1: think that's amazing, and we we've still got rooms to go. We've got a couple more to go.
2: So we're going to go into the next section of the exhibition. We're just going to walk through here. This is the room devoted to divination, crystal balls, oh. tea leaf palmistry. There's
1: too much to look at. There's it's quite brilliant. a lot, isn't
2: it? And then slightly darker now. Oh. We're now in a room which is devoted to defence against the dark arts and how to protect yourself against the evil eye.
1: Mm. And what I'm really excited about is this painting. Mm. I had no idea it was going to be here and mm. it is one of my absolute favourites. It's called The Magic Circle yes. by Waterhouse. Mm-hmm. It's a pre-Raphaelite-esque painting, mm-hmm. but she is just incredible. She's always captivated me, this oh, yes. angsty witch doing this yes. magic inside yes. this protective space. She's
2: making, so she's a sorceress, isn't she? Mm. She's, the well, landscape, she's on a, it looks like she's on a beach with the cliffs behind her and she's making this protective circle Around her, much like Hermione does in the Deathly Hallows, by the way, and uh, in the centre of a the circle, there you have, you know, she's heating up a cauldron. Um, but behind, outside of the circle, you have you have crows, ravens, yeah. and it's. A bit and more they can't come in. Outside. I mean,
1: this is the thing. You've got that that crow over there that's mm. on the skull, yeah. and and there's a sort of a burning coming mm. out of the the mm. circle is she's yeah. drawing it with this very, very
2: long wand. It's a very, very long wand. Yeah. Very, it's a very evocative painting, isn't it?
1: Mm. And the way, I mean, I just think it's so beautifully done. It's very naturalistic, mm. the folds mm. in her dress, but mm. the way that her hand becomes the wand and she's yes. intuitively protecting this space. Yeah. And then the suggestion of violence all the way through, because mm. she's got that sickle in her hand, oh, yes. That that's, yeah. what's going to happen? Why has she got that? What is she actually protecting herself from? I mean, I just think that the way that the posy of flowers is tied mm. around her waist as well. Mm. So delicately painted. The more mm. you look, the more detail you see. Each individual little petal there. Mm. Um, but overall, it's just so atmospheric, isn't it? It's both mm. strong and unsettling. You feel she's she's vulnerable in one way, yeah, but she's absolutely. taking control.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, exactly.
1: It was an interesting one to get for this room. Oh, we're
2: very delighted to get this as well. We buy this from the Tate, so we're delighted to have that. Okay. So, bit more sinister, this is a, a genuine witch's cauldron. I Borrowed it from a Museum of Magic and Witchcraft in, in Boscastle in Cornwall and it had exploded. <gasps> and the story goes that there are three witches, they were making a potion on a beach in Cornwall, uh, reputedly they are trying to raise up an evil spirit of some kind and something went wrong. And the cauldron exploded and was flung onto the rocks, and they, they fled in panic, and it was later recovered. And you can have a look. I mean, you can yeah. see it's covered in tar oh and resin goodness. after whatever was inside it. Something <coughs> something went wrong.
1: So, was there tar inside it? So that what what's people, exploded mm, mm. out? Oh my god! So even
2: you know even today people try and practice. Um, magic. So
1: it's relatively recently that oh, this was uh, happening.
2: fairly recently. Oh, uh, my in goodness. In the 20th century, I believe. In the 20th century? I believe.
1: I love it. Oh, there's just... I, I'm overwhelmed because okay. even behind us, there's, there's uh, actual bits of got, Harry Potter. We, of we've
2: got... I mean, this, for example, this is a very early aborted version of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Yeah. Um, Where, you know instead of starting with Dursley's, it starts with a Minister for Magic. Cornelius Fudge, and Hagrid has an encounter with him, and J.K. Rowling's gone a record to say that she did multiple different versions of the, the beginning of the, the first book before she quite got it right.
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness, so a lost mm. bit yeah. of the Philosopher's yeah. Stone. It's just it's amazing, it just doesn't end, this place. There's just so much to it's see.
2: Spectacular, isn't it? And now, they're Coming oh, wow. to, well, oh, okay. So, I always wanted to be a zoologist when I was younger, did you? So, I'm quite fond of this particular room. This is care kind of magical creatures, and of course, but some of those creatures include dragons and unicorns. I can hear and them, and I can, you can hear actually them. hear them. I can, I can hear see them, see them. you can see them walking past. There's it's a real you know, that's a real hippogriff, which is walking behind us. <laughs> there's
1: Buckbeak. it's
2: just in the windows <laughs> behind us. Um, dragons, we've got dragons, owls. we've got owls and toads, oh, well, and curly cats. yeah, and we've got the, the phoenix as well. My I, I'm I'm extraordinarily fond of phoenixes, and the more I've worked in this exhibition, um, and I'm particularly fond of this. This, this is, is
1: one I know very very well. Yeah. I love this manuscript. It's extraordinary. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's an English bestiary. It's a 13th century. Mm. But to me, it's so iconic because it is one of the earliest surviving images oh, yes. in, in English manuscripts of yep. the phoenix. Yes, isn't it?
2: exactly. And. Uh, Actually, you know, it's also quite an impressive looking book. It's quite mm. large. The decoration is quite, you know, it's quite cute as well.
1: It's well done. I think the the, the initials are lovely. There's mm-hmm. some very nice line work there in red and in blue. Um, and then you've got, yeah, like you say, these lovely roundels. And then you
2: have, and, and then, then you, you have, powerful. and then you have the phoenix. And it, you know, there is, is named in red, F-E-N-I-X phoenix and so the, the illustrations accompany the text and the text establishes you know what this particular bird is so there's um,
1: dragons around be, pretty pretty dragons. Be dragons. <laughs> now
2: of course now of course many of the animals featured in this particular book are also going to be real creatures yes and then there's a crossover between what are real creatures creatures which the artist has never seen yeah. but has heard of like elephants and then you have animals and birds like the phoenix Mm. and so there's a whole mythological story built up around the phoenix in this case it's very specific it tells you the phoenix is a native of arabia Mm -hmm. um, and it lives for 500 years Mm. and then towards the end of its life it builds its own funeral pyre and this is what you can see happening here yeah, it arises again after nine days.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Arises again after nine days, and again there's a kind of like connection between that and the resurrection of Absolutely. Christ as well. So it has, you know, theological significance as well. Yeah. But the, the colors are fantastic. Colors are fantastic. Those reds and that blue greeny is gone.
1: Yeah, the flames are, uh, are so dynamic. I think yeah. this is bec- for me this is a very iconic medieval yeah. illumination. Yeah, yeah. Yet again, it's that that. Bridge between mm-hmm. you know, different information, scientific information coming into England, mm-hmm. being disseminated, being mixed up, wrapped mm-hmm. up with Christian theology, yeah, myth absolutely. and legend, and and yet all kind of channeled through this animal, this mm-hmm. creature that yeah. they don't know if it exists Which or it they
2: doesn't. Don't know. Yeah. I think I mean in the case of many of these mythical creatures, like the unicorn or the basilisk. you know, I, I I you can guess in a very They're fairly aware that they're elaborating and they're making it up as they go along. But Mm. it's just that storytelling element, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and the unknown. I mean, Mm. there's always that sense um, in the medieval world that... Maybe you haven't reached the edges of no. knowledge. Maybe there's still more there's to discover. There's still
2: something to discover. Yeah. And uh, if the ancient Greeks believed in a phoenix, then why shouldn't I? I want to have my own pet phoenix, please.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes the symbol, of course, for the show. It's the symbol
2: of our show, absolutely, yes. And Harry Potter, A History of Magic.
1: Harry Potter, A History of Magic. Well, I have... Had the most extraordinary time mm. with you I've here. I've
2: loved showing you around. It's been amazing. This is this great is heaven. Time. You know, yeah.
1: manuscripts <laughs> and magic and mm. artifacts and paintings yeah. all together, mm. and to be able to share it with you and have such joy and enthusiasm around Thank it. It's you. been
2: amazing. It's been it's been huge fun, hasn't right. it? So Thank much. you for coming. Thank you.